ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You would have thought with a population exceeding 1.4 billion, a nation wouldn't be too worried if the number of people living there went down a bit. But in China, it's a time to panic. As it battles with an economic slowdown and an ageing society, Beijing is begging families to have more babies to stop a population decline that's now been recorded for a second year in a row. But why is a falling birth rate necessarily a bad thing. I'm Sam Hawley on Gadigal Land in Sydney. This is ABC News Daily. My name is Stuart Heathel-Bastin and I am a professor of social science and public policy at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. Stuart, a big factor in China's shrinking population is, of course, there isn't enough babies being born. But up until a few years ago, of course, it was government policy that there couldn't be too many babies born under the one-child policy, wasn't there? Yeah, that's right. And it's quite, uh, for those of us who've worked on China for a few years, it it feels kind of remarkable that uh, we've seen this complete turnaround. The often harsh autocratic rule has allowed the government to control growth and impose policies like the one-child rule introduced in 1979. If couples have more than one child, they miss out on government and welfare programs from restricting the number of children that you can have, and of course there are still restrictions in place, over to encouraging the number of children that you should have or you could have. China's government has announced it's scrapping a policy limiting couples to two children and will now allow them to have three. The one-child policy was ended in 2015. It was always a bit hard, I guess, in the West for us to fathom that a government could tell you how many children you were allowed to have. So what what are the rules now in China? Well, so now we have a national three-child policy. Everyone is allowed to have three children and very often is encouraged to have three children. But the reality is, of course, is that the number of people with three kids is actually pretty low and the aspirations or the ideals to have three kids is also pretty low as well. And that's not just in the cities, but also in the countryside. Mm, Actually, it just reminds me, not quite the same, but our treasurer, Peter Costello, some time ago in the early 2000s, was really urging everyone to have three babies. For each baby, you'd get money. Is this a breeding budget, Mr Costello? Are you the family-friendly treasurer saying, get out there and procreate? You should have, uh, if you can, not everyone can, but one for your husband and one for your wife and one for the country. So just tell me, back to China, how much has the population shrunk by? What are we looking at now? What are they concerned about? What are the numbers? Uh, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a lot. I mean, you know, we're talking of a population of, you know, 1.3, 1.4 billion or whatever it is, and um, declines of like one million or two million or or a small number. But it's more psychological, Mm. I think. You know, firstly, to say, well, we've ended this era of growth 
of everything growing rapidly, whether it's population, whether it's the economy, right? That has come to an end and we are stagnating now and aging very rapidly, which I think is a bigger issue necessarily than, than, than population decline. But then of course, the longer we go on into the future, you know, if you see a very low fertility rate for a very long time with very little or negligible rates of immigration, then yeah, your population is going to shrink mm. and it's going to shrink a lot and it's particularly going to shrink at the younger ages. And so that I think is where the, the fear or the panic about China and the Chinese economy and of course its place in the world comes from when we're looking over the next 50 years or so. So apart from that sort of fear of not being the largest nation in the world, you know, the psychological effect of all of this, what are the actual then consequences for the economy in China of this? And then, of course, what's the flow-on effect for the rest of the world? If you've got an economy which is based on you know, relatively cheap labour, on intensive manufacturing and construction and infrastructure development then obviously that requires a lot of people, and particularly at younger ages. On the other hand, if you also have got a society where those younger people work in high labour-intensive jobs, have to pay a lot of tax in order to pay for pensions and for health and welfare systems in older age, then that becomes a big challenge. So if you carry on in that path when your demographic circumstances are changing, but you keep on having high labour-intensive, cheap labour um, and a very large redistribution of tax and income, obviously it's going to come unstuck. You know, China is just the latest country in a long line of countries to go through that demographic change. Tonight's special report on Japan's population crisis. The country's population has been declining now for 14 straight years. Korea has the lowest birth rate in the world, a record it keeps breaking. Without a boost to migration, it needs almost triple that just to keep the population steady. It's not just China that's dealing with a declining population. That's happening all over the world, including in Australia. Uh, our population growth is slowing at the same time uh, as Australians are living uh, longer and healthier lives. Uh, and so population growth is slowing and it, our population is ageing. Uh, and in that context... Yeah, yeah. It's not a universal phenomenon, but it's certainly something that we're going to see more and more of around the world. Remember, the answer to this is not to have more babies. Because mm. if you have more babies and there's no jobs in your county, there's no opportunities, there's no school, well, what are you going to do? You're going to move, mm. right? So it, it's we have to think about this in a more holistic, like joined-up way, I would suggest. Because mm. as I mentioned, you know, in the early 2000s, in Australia, people were offered money to have more babies. They really ideally were being urged to have three babies. In China now, the government's also offering cash incentives and tax deductions to try and encourage people to have more children. But from what you're saying, that's not really a good approach. And actually, from the Australian example, at least, it doesn't actually work. There's very, very few examples from around the world where policies that are designed to increase the fertility rates actually work. Because what they tend to do is they change when people have children. 
not the total number, right? And of course, the other reason why these policies don't work in the long run is that having children is about much more than money. It's about the cost to your career, right? And particularly if you're a woman, it's very easy for me as, as a man to say this because the, the primary cost of, of childbearing around the world on career development is on the shoulders of women. And that when you actually cost that out, then it becomes extremely expensive. But having said that, just to go back to the Australian case, supporting people who are going to have children is a good thing. This, right? That's not to say, I'm not saying that we shouldn't give families money, but we shouldn't be blaming them for not having enough children mm -hmm. and using, frankly, women's wombs as a means to fix the pension system. Yes. That's crazy. That doesn't make sense. I think our fertility rate is something like 1.7, so well below the three that uh, they were after in the early 2000s. So it seems like we've now realised that's not going to change very quickly, so we've turned to migration to boost our population instead. So our population is growing quite rapidly because of migration. We now have something like 27 million people in the country. Is that a sustainable option for governments to create population growth, is just to use migration? Well, there's no doubt migration is always the quickest and most effective way to grow a population and to change the age structure of a population. But the first thing we forget is that migrants also get old. And unless you're a country like somewhere in the Middle East, where you basically to say, you say to migrants, you're never going to settle here permanently. As soon as you lose a job or you're not employed anymore, you've got to go home. Well, most countries are not like that, right? So they, it only postpones this uh, ageing, uh, the, the impact on the age structure. But then also the second thing, more broadly, is to say, well, why do we need the population to grow so rapidly? I was going to ask. Yeah, there is no optimal number. Same with the age structure. There is no optimal age structure. I just think it's much better for us to focus our attentions on saying, well, look, how can we support and do the most with the people that we've got, right? I mean, it, it seems madness to me in many parts of the world that are worrying about low fertility, worrying about ageing, um, worrying about migration, and yet have got youth unemployment rates of 10, 15, 20%. So it's just this illusion of growth, which I think we have to maybe start to move away from. But then how do we deal with that problem of an ageing population? What's the solution, I suppose, to that? Well, again, you have to just recognise that this is an inevitable change in your society, in any society, and you have to reorientate yourself towards it. It's like as a grand challenge, if you will, or a, a, as some kind of mega trend. So we think about how can we adapt our society to an older society? Well, that includes making sure that older people are given every opportunity that they can to be as active and as healthy for as long as possible to engage in society. And when they are no longer able to do that, they should have the best care possible, which involves kind of long-term care and income protection and so on. We have to enable middle-aged people like me and younger people to age better in the future. And that means reimagining our systems, our work systems, 
and our pension systems are designed for a very different time. You know, our pension systems are designed for when only a small number of people made it to the mid-60s and they only live for a few years. Well, we have to change that. We have to adapt that. About retirement, you know, we, we used to think of retirement of, well, you're going to be stuck in your job, which you're going to hate, for 40 years. And then on the day you retire, will be the same day you get your pension and you're going to put your feet up and do nothing for five or ten years and then you're going to die. Well, that's not the way it is anymore. So we have to adapt to that. Younger people. Yes, we can have fewer younger people. But if those younger people are more highly skilled, more highly educated, they're healthier, they're more adaptable, well, then maybe they can be more productive. You know, we, we realise their full potential. So we just have to look at it in a different, multidimensional way. Mm. And in Japan, of course, using robots to help older people. That's right. It is kind of cool, and you see these robots wandering around and uh, doing stuff and chatting away and picking people up and, and so on and so forth. But, you know, again, if you take a step back, Japan also is incredibly healthy. You know, people are living for a long time because in older age uh, and across the life course, there is, a, you know, an emphasis on diet and health and exercise and, and so on. The solution is not going to only be through kind of cool robots with big smiles that are going to fix things. And although there is a role for that, but it's going to be about ensuring that we all live better uh, for longer. Yeah. So Stuart, your message is less growth, which would make it easier to, I suppose, go to somewhere like Bondi Beach or maybe a beach in Cornwall in the UK. There'd be less people around. <laughs> I've never. <laughs> but you're saying we just need to. I, I've never been to Bondi, Bondi Beach and, and I'm afraid I grew up in Nottingham, so it's too far from Cornwall. It's a bit too <laughs> posh in Cornwall. Anyway, my point is the world is quite crowded. <laughs> I, get the, I, I, get, I get the point. I, I definitely get the point. But you're saying forget about growth and just adapt to what we've got. That's the best option. Yeah, that's right. I'm sure there'll be plenty of economists who are listening to this who are kind of grinding their teeth and you know, throwing up into their dinner or whatever. But you know, like, GDP is not everything, right? Growth is not everything. There, there comes a point where we go beyond that. It's, there's got to be more to life than, than GDP, and, and I think that there is. Stuart Gettle-Baston is from the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. This episode was produced by Bridget Fitzgerald and Nell Whitehead. Audio production by Anna John. Our supervising producer is David Cody. I'm Sam Hawley. Thanks for listening.